And now let's turn to the Word of God. I'm going to read to you two portions from Scripture, from the Word of God. First of all, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth, your possession. You will, be, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we turn to the New Testament, to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians, chapter 2, and beginning to read at verse 5. Philippians 2, beginning to read at verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that of the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God bless to us these readings from his infallible word and to his name be praise and glory. Amen. Welcome tonight. Good to have you with us, Robert. Thank you, John. <clears throat> it's always good to be in the receiving end of John's welcomes <laughs> because it makes you feel good no matter how really you are feeling at this stage in the proceedings. 
But it is always a joy and a privilege uh, to, to be here, and I would like to thank the Christian Institute for inviting me again to give a lecture in this autumn series. And I also want to, to say how much we appreciate the Christian Institute in Northern Ireland, because they, they alert us to things that are going on in the province that we are unaware of. And we like to think that we have our ear fairly close to the ground. For example, uh, I have a letter here that came from the director, Colin Hart. It, it came into to my, my house about a week ago and it was alerting me to the new sexual orientation regulations that are supposedly to be fast-tracked and to become law in Northern Ireland by the 1st of January. And that was the first I'd heard of it, something that could affect uh, my wife and my daughter, who are both teachers, something that could affect uh, our denomination, the Reformed Presbyterian Church. It's quite easy to understand. It's Presbyterian in government. It's Reformed in its doctrine. That's what Reformed Presbyterianism is all about. But, but we didn't know about this. None of my colleagues Apparently no one knew about it, but the Christian Institute knew about it and alerted us to this, and letters have been written, and I know that a lot of lobbying is going on, and we trust and pray that through the work of the Christian Institute and those who are working to, to uh, scupper uh, the government's plans will be successful. <clears throat> the Rule of Jesus Christ. A simple title, but it's a profound theme. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Tony Blair, created a furore in the British media some months ago when he said that he would have to give an account to God for taking the nation to war in Iraq. The press uh, was cynical. Political commentators ridiculed the Prime Minister for bringing religion into politics. But Tony Blair was right. More right, possibly, than he himself imagined. Like everyone else in a position of authority, Tony Blair will have to give an account to Christ, not only for taking the nation to war, but also for every other decision that he has taken as Prime Minister. Whether he realizes it or not, he is a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant of God in the state, and one servant of Jesus Christ who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. In Proverbs chapter 8, uh, Christ is described there under uh, the, the title Wisdom Personified. Uh, he is the one who announces in Proverbs chapter 8, by me kings reign, by me Prince's rule. He is described in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 as the ruler of the kings of the earth. In the same way as elders will have to give an account to Christ for their leadership in the church, so politicians will have to give an account to Christ for their leadership in the nations. Now, to understand the rule of Christ, it is important to recognize its source. As God, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, has always been king. It's important to recognize that. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit 
as God, have always been king. Psalm 47 celebrates the position occupied by God. Verses 6 to 8 of that psalm. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. God is the eternal king, has always been king. And as the second person of the Godhead, that applies to Christ. At a point in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, pride took possession of his mind, leading him to arrogantly boast of all his accomplishments. God's response was to humble him, teaching him, according to Daniel 4.32, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Thankfully, Nebuchadnezzar learned from the Lord's rebuke and praised the, the Lord, recognizing, I quote, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So, so outside of Israel, outside of what is called the theocratic kingdom, uh, kings had to recognize who was in control, who was the Lord, who was the governor of all the earth. It is appropriate to speak of the sovereign rule of God in a general way as applying to the Godhead, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as I've just done. There is, however, a sovereignty attributed to the Son of God, which is unique and special. And that's my remit tonight to speak of that. This sovereignty is associated with his role as mediator. And it belongs to him. It belongs to him in consequence of his great work of atonement. It belongs to him in consequence of him offering up himself a perfect sacrifice at Calvary to make atonement for his people. Now, this sovereignty which belongs to Christ in association with his role as mediator is often referred to as Christ's mediatorial sovereignty. Now, that's a term you may not have come across before, but it's an important one to grasp. Christ's mediatorial sovereignty. His sovereignty that belongs to him distinctively as mediator. Now, we will understand the specific rule or sovereignty associated with Christ as we consider its chronology in the history of redemption. And that's the route along which I'm going to take you this evening. Now, there are five stops along the way, so uh, you'll know how far along the journey we are. Uh, This is the first stop. First of all, the rule of Christ anticipated the rule of Christ anticipated. And then we will go on to consider the rule of Christ announced. Then thirdly, the rule of Christ acknowledged. And then the, the most practical point along the journey, the rule of Christ applied. And that's probably where many of the questions will arise. And then fifthly, the rule of Christ accomplished. First of all, the rule of Christ anticipated. <clears throat> In Genesis 49, we find Jacob blessing his sons. 
He's something very relevant to say to all his sons, but very specially to Judah. And that's found in uh, chapter 49 of Genesis and from verse 8. Listen to these words. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Then these words, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes, or until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh is a messianic title. Until he comes, or until Shiloh comes, to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations, plural, and the obedience of the nations is his. So one is coming from the tribe of Judah, who will exercise rule. To whom is Jacob referring? Uh, David emerged from the tribe of Judah. So was this a reference to David? Well, Revelation 5 and verse 5 provides the inspired answer. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And that's a reference to Jesus Christ, quite clearly and easily understood within the context. The line of the tribe of Judah. And so, given that title, that is the same language that is used in Genesis 49, and it's a clear reference that what was anticipated, who was anticipated, was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So back in the days of the patriarchs, there was the anticipation of a coming king who would exercise rule. And remember what was said about his rule. Genesis 49 verse 10. And the obedience of the nations is his. Not only the obedience of Israel but the obedience of the nations. Moving on about 400 years to the time when Israel as a nation was about to enter the promised land, the nation was again reminded about the coming king. The prophecy this time came from the lips of Balaam. Numbers 44 and verse 17. Now Balaam was a a bit of a devious prophet, and yet sovereignly God spoke through him. Uh, words about the coming Messiah. I see, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Who is that star? Revelation 22 and verse 16 describes Christ as the bright morning star. So this reference from Numbers speaks of the coming messianic king and it speaks of him crushing his enemies and blessing his subjects as only a king can do. He will crush the foreheads of Moab but Israel will grow strong. 
Then we move on in redemptive history, another four to five hundred years, uh, to the year 950 B.C. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read about God's covenant with David. And God promises David a never-ending dynasty, a dynasty that will never end, that there will never fail to be someone from his house on the throne. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Did that ever come to pass? Well, God's word never falls to the ground. And we see that this promise found fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of David. About Jesus, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, Luke 1, 32 and 33, about the coming child, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And then we move on another 400 years to the time of the exile, about 550 BC. And during the exile in Babylon, Daniel was given the vision of Messiah's rule, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. Then in the penultimate book of the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah, we have the words that were referred to Christ when he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. Zechariah 9 and verse 9, about 520 BC. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then notice the words in the 10th verse, the next verse. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The rule of Christ anticipated. These scriptures and many others in the Old Testament point forward to the coming of the Messiah and they flag up very clearly, his universal and his everlasting rule. Yes, in coming, he would be more than a king. He would come as the great and final prophet, teaching all things that the Father had made known to him. He would come also as the great and final priest, not only to make intercession for his people, but also to offer up himself a sacrifice for sins. 
The prophetic office of Christ is a subject in and of itself, as is also his high priestly office. Preeminently tonight we are thinking about his kingly office and about the rule of Jesus Christ. And so the rule of Christ anticipated. And now secondly, the rule of Christ announced The rule of Christ announced. When the Magi, the wise men, came to Jerusalem, they disturbed Herod by saying, or asking the question, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? They clearly understood the regal status of the boy born to Joseph and Mary in the stable at Bethlehem. When Jesus began his public ministry, he announced, Mark 1, verse 15, The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. What did he mean when he said, the kingdom of God is near? The kingdom of God was near because the king was present. The king was in the midst. And that is why he called upon people to repent and believe in order to enter the kingdom that he came to establish. We associate authority with kingly rule. And if Jesus Christ was the king anticipated in all the Old Testament prophecies, then we would expect to see evidence of his authority while he was here on earth. Is that evidence present. Well, when we look at the life and ministry of our Lord, we are not disappointed. Mark 1, 27. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. And with authority. And then it is added, he even gives orders to evil spirits And they obey him. They obey him. Matthew 7, 28 and 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. The king speaking with authority. Matthew 9, 6 to 8. Jesus uh, addressing the, the onlookers, the scoffers, the mockers, after he had declared that the man, lame, had, had been forgiven his sins. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up and take your mat and go home. When the crowd saw this, They were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men, such authority. On the streets of Capernaum and in the synagogues of Galilee and Judea, the crowds were spellbound because they had never seen, they had never seen authority like this on earth before. Not much wonder because the king was among them. 
the Lord of glory was in the midst. The messianic king had arrived. Sadly, many of the Jews misunderstood the Old Testament prophecies. Their concept of a messianic king led them to believe that his mission would be to restore the geographic boundaries of ancient Israel, Israel in her glory days, in the days of David and Solomon. Right up to his ascension, the disciples even persisted in such views. Remember the words recorded in Acts 1 verse 8. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Earlier, Jesus had pointed out to Pilate, John 18 and verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. This talk led Pilate to exclaim, You are a king then? To which Jesus replied, You're right. You're right. You're right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. The rule of Christ announced. For the Christ to enter into his kingdom, however, it would involve suffering and death. In the outworking of God's eternal plan of redemption, the Son, Jesus Christ, would have to bear the curse of a broken law. And this he did. This he did for his people. God had promised him as we will see in a moment or two from Psalm 2, that he would give to the Son the nations as an inheritance. Now, Satan, Satan tempted Jesus by saying, if you fall down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. Now, that was a false promise, but it was a temptation that he would get the kingdoms without the cross. But the kingdom or the kingdoms of this world, came as a consequence of his obedience, his obedience unto death, as we heard from our reading from Philippians chapter 2. And it was there at Calvary. At Calvary he triumphed over sin and death. There at Calvary he gained the victory over the opposing kingdom, over the kingdom of darkness and over the prince of darkness, over Satan himself. Colossians 2 and verse 13. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The rule of Christ anticipated, the rule of Christ announced, and now thirdly, the rule of Christ acknowledged. The rule of Christ acknowledged. By the way of the cross, Christ entered into his unique and special position as mediatorial king. And we see that acknowledged, first of all, by the Father. In the opening words of Psalm 110, we are privileged, very, very privileged, to listen into a conversation that took place in heaven 
after the resurrection. We are given an opportunity to eavesdrop into a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Verse 1. The Lord, and that is the Hebrew word Yahweh, said to my Lord, and that's a different Hebrew word, it's the word Adonai. So it is the Lord Yahweh, the Lord, the Father, saying to my Lord, the psalmist is, is recognizing uh, the second person of the Godhead as his Lord and Savior. Uh, so God the Father is speaking to God the Son. And what does he say? And this is what he said after the ascension. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the right hand is the position of honor, the position of privilege. It's the exalted position that Christ was given after his redemptive work on the cross. The special rule of Christ is spoken of in Psalm 2. To a rebellious and scoffing world, God the Father speaks of his anointed one. You are my son. And then he refers to his coronation. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then he says to the son, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. About the son's reign, he says, you will rule them with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. And to the faithful subjects of King Jesus, the Holy Spirit says, Blessed, blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The rule of Christ acknowledged by the Father. And then we see, secondly, the rule of Christ acknowledged by himself. Christ, before his ascension, had a self-conscious awareness of the rule that had been given to him as a consequence of his willingness to suffer and be obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Because shortly before his ascension, he said to his disciples, Matthew 28 and verse 18, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That statement has powerful implications. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that in all things he might have the supremacy, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Acknowledged by the Father, Acknowledged by the Son, then briefly looking at this mediatorial kingship being acknowledged by the apostles. And that this is acknowledged very clearly and very explicitly in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. After referring to his obedience, his submission to death, the apostle Paul went on to say, therefore, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now the enemies of uh, the, the Lord and the, and the apostles picked up on this. Uh, we read in the book of Acts, chapter 17, how the unbelieving Jews dragged Jason and other Christians before the city authorities. And this is what they said. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So they were, as it were, setting aside the decrees of Caesar, that they might be submissive to the authority of Jesus Christ and the enemies recognize this. Ephesians 1 verse 22, And he put all things, that's the Father, and this is what he did for the Son. He put all things under his feet, and gave him to be as head over all things to the church. Head over all things. Clearly then acknowledged by the apostles. Then, fourthly, as we move quickly through this acknowledgement, acknowledged by the post-apostolic church. Acknowledged by the post-apostolic church. Christians suffered extreme persecution because they would not give to the Caesars the honour that was due to Christ alone. The Caesars wanted Christians to say, Caesar is Lord, but they would not and were prepared to suffer and to die because to them Christ was Lord and Christ alone. After Polycarp was cruelly stabbed and viciously burned, Because of his love and loyalty to Christ, his small congregation recorded the event as follows. The blessed Polycarp was martyred in the proconsulship of Status Quadratus, but in the everlasting reign of Jesus Christ. In common with New Testament saints, they were saying, we have another king, Jesus And then we notice also that this great truth was acknowledged at the Reformation. The rule of Jesus Christ was acknowledged, I believe, throughout the history of the church in in, in one way or another, by one group or another, but never as well defined as in the Scottish Reformation in the 17th century. In the 16th century, the great truth rediscovered was None but Christ saves. In the next century, the Covenanters withstood a great furnace of affliction to declare to the world that none but Christ reigns. And the two truths need to be trumpeted to the world today. None but Christ saves and none but Christ reigns. Today, the majority of Christians will give assent to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
but ask them, question them, how does this affect your life? And they might shrug their shoulders and and say, well, I'm not sure. You see, many Christians have never thought through the application or the implications of the sovereign rule of Christ, that he is head over all things, and that it is God's purpose that in all things he should be given the preeminence. And so, after having looked at the rule of Christ, anticipated, and the rule of Christ announced, and the rule of Christ acknowledged, we must now consider the rule of Christ applied. The rule of Christ applied. The Bible makes very clear the implications of Christ's rule. It can be summed up in in one word, and it is the word submission. Every knee shall bow to him. And so the implications of Christ's rule to the world, to the universe, is submission. The whole world, the entire universe, is under an obligation to recognize Christ's rule and to submit to his authority in practical terms for for human beings and for human institutions. This means but one thing, obedience and loyalty. Obedience and loyalty. On one occasion, Jesus put a very pointed question to his listeners. And that question is found in Luke 6 and verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Why do you call me? Why do you persist in calling me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? And many professing Christians and even Christian churches will call Jesus Lord. They will give him that title. They may even call him king. But it appears to me that they've given little or no thought to the implications of these titles or what the 17th century reformers would have called the crown rights of the Redeemer or the royal prerogatives of King Jesus. And so we will look at four categories to illustrate the implication or application of Christ's kingly rule. We will be looking at the individual and the family and the church and the state. Uh, We could look at the legal profession. We could look at institutions of learning, universities and colleges. Uh, We could look at the arts and we could look at the sciences because Christ is king of all these areas, but to simplify things, we'll, we'll look at these, these four. First of all, the implications of his rule over the individual. Some churches have taught that a person can become a Christian by accepting Jesus Christ as Savior, and then sometime later, maybe, to come to recognize him as Lord. But such teaching is entirely false. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead. And to be saved, one must believe in Christ 
as he is offered in the gospel. Jesus Christ, in all aspects of his person, as your prophet to teach you, as your priest to pray for you and to offer himself a sacrifice for you, and as your king to rule over you, the one to whom you must submit, the one to whom you must render obedience. You cannot divide the person of Christ. You either receive him as Savior and Lord, or you have not received him at all. To enter the kingdom of this illustrious king, you must by grace be born again. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God and its evidence of the new birth, to recognize the authority, to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. When an individual enters the kingdom, he not only loves the king, but he loves his law. The commands of the king ought to be an affair of the heart. The psalmist said, O how love I thy law. It is my study all the day. It makes me wiser than my foes. Its precepts with me stay. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 6. God said about his law, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. Not not some legalistic concept of the law, but that we love the law because we love the king. And we want to obey the law because we love the one who has given us these laws. The Ten Commandments are precisely called, in Exodus 24 and verse 7, the Book of the Covenant the book of the covenant. And over and over again in the word of God, we are exhorted to keep the covenant. And in Psalm 103 and verse 18, we often sing about the promises that God gives to those who keep his covenant and remember his commandments to obey them. Christ's rule over the individual Christ's rule over families. Christ has delegated authority to parents to rule within the sphere of the home. And parents have an obligation to manage home and family life according to the will of him who is the king. Christ does something in his word to say to husbands and to wives and to parents and to children closing verses of Ephesians 5 and the opening verses of Ephesians 6. So why should a woman submit to her husband within the marriage relationship? Why should she do that? Because she loves Jesus Christ. Because she recognizes that Jesus Christ is the Lord of her life. Why should a husband love his wife as Christ loved the church? Because he recognizes that Jesus Christ is his Lord. Why should parents train up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Because they recognize the authority that Christ has given to them. Why should children obey their parents? Out of recognition of the kingship of Christ. 
It is a happy and a truly blessed home where Christ is acknowledged as King and where the family meet routinely to worship him in what we call family worship. And then those Christian families have the excitement of joining with other Christian families for congregational worship on the Lord's Day. And there, they're again blessed by the Lord. And that leads us to consider, thirdly, Christ's rule over the church. The headship of Christ over the church is very explicitly stated in many parts of Scripture. And any mention of Christ's rule over the church should be superfluous. But sadly and grievously, it appears that man's rule is more involved in some churches than Christ's rule. Church leaders, it would appear, are not asking, what does Christ want within his church? Rather, they appear to be asking, what do the majority of 21st century worshippers or potential worshippers want? And so because they're asking the wrong question, they're coming up with all the wrong answers. In the church, Christ has delegated authority to elders, often referred to in England as church leaders. And it is their responsibility to implement the rule of Christ in the life of the church. As men, he will be held accountable to Christ on the day of judgment. The doctrine of the church, the worship of the church, the government of the church are to be determined by understanding from the word of God the mind and will of Christ. Now in the 17th century, the Puritans in England and the Covenanters in Scotland suffered intensely because they contended for the crown rights of Jesus Christ within his church. In the face of tremendous pressure and gross interference from the Stuart kings on the throne. Now, the threat today is not so much from government interference from the outside, though sadly again that is raising its ugly head as recent legislation would indicate. But the interference, the innovation is coming from within from the church. That ought not to happen. Because Jesus Christ is the king and head of the church, she is therefore under obligation to receive from him and from him alone the doctrines of her faith, the institutions of her worship, the principles of her fellowship and order and government and discipline. And when that happens the church will begin to transform the culture around her. But what is happening instead? The church is being conformed to the culture. It appears to me that in the 60s we had a music revolution in the culture. And then within a decade 
we had a music revolution within the churches. It appears to me that in the 70s, feminism became rampant in the culture. And then in the 80s, feminism became rampant within the churches. In the 80s, homosexuality became rampant in the culture. And in the 90s, and up to the present day, homosexuality is beginning, beginning to become rampant in the churches. Where is the rule of Christ? Who determines what happens if we keep single-minded to honor him and only do what pleases him according to the word of God? Then we will be kept from these gross errors. Remember the Great Commission. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey everything. Not just a few popular things here and there. A few things that some people consider to be more important than others. No, teaching them to obey everything. Complete submission to the word of God. Now we go on to consider, fourthly, the application of Christ's rule over the nations. Remember the extent of his sovereignty, Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This universal sovereignty obviously extends to the nations. Go back to Genesis 49 and verse 10. And the obedience of the nations is his. The obedience of the nations belongs to him. His sovereignty belongs or extends to nations in general and to rulers in particular. Revelation 1 and verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Sadly, or very seldom, do rulers or nations recognize the universal sovereignty of Christ. Instead of, instead of submitting to his authority, there is a general tendency to rebel against his rule and cast aside his laws. It's been happening in the last decade, the last two decades, in, the, in all our lifetimes. We've seen it in our own nation. This led the psalmist to ask a very pointed question at the beginning of Psalm 2. We go back to it again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? He continues in verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, against his Messiah. What do they say? Let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. Let us cast off the law of God. But God in heaven is not perturbed by such defiance. Verses 4 to 6. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king 
on Zion, my holy hill. Then in this prophetic song, the Son, the Messiah, speaks. And he tells us what the Father said to him. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Then the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit provides the application. In the light of Christ's rule, there is a word of warning. A word of warning to those who exercise rule and authority on earth. Psalm 2 and the closing verses. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Do homage to the Son. Submit to his authority, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. And then those final words of blessing to those who do submit, to those who recognize his rule. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now what does this mean in practice? for rulers and for governments, to do homage to the Son, to recognize his rule, to govern according to his authority. Well, when, when questions arise as to, to what to do about, about uh, take the question of gambling, that has raised its head about casinos and about the national lottery, The word of God is clear. Those things are an infringement of the Eighth Commandment. And so if the government is unsure, the church should inform it as to what the word of God clearly states. And they have an obligation to implement laws that are consistent with the word of God. What about Sabbath observance? The nation did recognize in its laws that the Lord's day was a holy day a special day, a day set apart for the worship of God. But in the last couple of decades, there's been deregulation of that legislation. And so there has been a throwing aside of the fetters and the chains. What about the family? And this whole vexed question of homosexuality. The word of God is clear that homosexuality is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. And churches need to inform governments that that is in fact the case. And they invite the wrath of the king should they legislate for those who practice this perversion. And we we could mention the protection of human life, the sixth commandment. And it grieves me continually to think of the innocent blood that is being shed day after day in our nation, inviting the wrath of the king for those who cannot speak for themselves, the murder of children within the womb, blasphemy and 
pornography and substance abuse, all of these things attacking the law of God. And our nation seems to be oblivious that they are to be servants of the King of Kings and to implement his rule within the sphere of the nation. Obviously, that did happen to some extent in the 19th century, but we're more enlightened now and we're, we're more educated now and we're moving away from those things to the destruction of the nation. Now, we need to recognize that with our present world leaders like George Bush or Tony Blair or Jack Chirac or Angela Merkel or Vladimir Putin, submit to Christ or not, his rule will prevail. That's why there should be a smile on all our faces tonight. He's still on the throne. And whether they will submit or not, his rule, his rule at the end of the day will prevail. Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Psalm 135 and verse 6. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their, their deep, their depths. This is illustrated for us in the case of Cyrus. Even before he was born, the prophet Isaiah said of him in Isaiah 44 and verse 28, or God speaks uh, through Isaiah, I am the Lord who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. A king of Persia who did not know the Lord, but who implemented a foreign policy that meant that captive peoples were to go back to their native lands exactly as the Lord had decreed. And so God brought to pass as well through someone who didn't even know him. So in a world of apparent moral confusion and evident spiritual anarchy, it is comforting and encouraging for the people of God to know that Christ has his hands on the controls and that he will not relinquish his grip until all kingdoms are in submission to him. And then he will hand over the kingdom to the Father so that God may be all in all. Jesus Christ is Lord, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Tony Blair and all civil rulers will have to give an account to him as to how they've implemented his rule within the sphere of the nation, as will elders have to give an account to him for how they've implemented his rule within the sphere of the church, as will parents as to how they've implemented his rule within the sphere of the home, as will each one of us as to how we have submitted to him as king of our lives. The journey's nearly over. The rule of Christ anticipated, the rule of Christ denounced, the rule of Christ acknowledged, the rule of Christ applied, and now finally, the rule of Christ accomplished. When the resurrected Christ entered the throne room of heaven, the Father said, Sit at my right hand until, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That word until implies a process. 
Yes, we see in Christ a king on his throne. But yet not everyone is subject to him. The experience of our own hearts teaches us this. Because sin still prevails and not every aspect of our being is in complete submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see it, obviously, in the world about us. The Word of God confirms it. Hebrews 2 and verse 8. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. So everything has been placed under him by the Father, but at present we do not see everything subject to him. That raises the question, have we any guarantee that we will see everything subject to him? When I'm only halfway through digging the garden, I cannot, I'm afraid I cannot guarantee that I will ever finish it, that I will ever complete the job. You see, I may lose interest in the garden, or I may become preoccupied with other things, or my health may deteriorate and I may be no longer able to dig the garden. But what about the rule of Christ? What guarantee have we that it will ever be fulfilled, that we will see everything in submission to him? 1 Corinthians 15 and 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He must reign. He must continue to reign until every last enemy has been brought into submission. Here we have simply stated the the purpose of Christ's reign. To bring all enemies into submission. This is his program for government. This is well expressed in the Westminster Shorter Catechism when it speaks about Christ as King. Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us, his people, to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in conquering all his and our enemies. He is not only gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He is the warrior king whose garments are stained with the blood of his enemies. He has engaged his enemies, and he will not cease his rule until he has been triumphant, until he is victorious over all his and our enemies. In the history of our nation, we have known long reigns. Queen Victoria reigned for 64 years, and then she died. Our present queen has reigned for 54 years and is still going strong. But I can tell you, she will not reign forever. In contrast, our Saviour's reign is of permanent duration. This is well captured in Handel's Messiah, especially in that chorus line taken from Revelation 11. And he will reign forever and ever. He will. Wicked earthly rulers have shaken their fist at our kingly king, at our glorious triumphant Jesus Christ. Nero 
and his Roman Empire, Stalin and his Soviet system, Hitler and his Third Reich. But all these men have died, and all their empires have crumbled and fallen. But Jesus Christ, the King of glory, he marches on from victory unto victory. To a few frightened disciples, he delivered his commission. And you shall be my witnesses, beginning at Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the surrounding world. Friends, the kingdom has grown, and it will continue to grow until Christ is known and his rule acknowledged by peoples from the rising of the sun in the east to the setting of the sun in the west. The kingdom of Christ is an everlasting kingdom, and the rule and reign of Christ is of permanent duration. For he must reign, and he will continue to reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. This climax to Christ's reign, the accomplishment of his reign, will be evident when, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Right. Who would like to ask the first question? Again, before I ask them. Some of the wisest people are sitting in the most difficult corners of the room. Yes, sir. I'd be interested to hear how you see that we should expect the increasing rule of Christ on earth. Uh, Should we expect increasing uh, honor to him and growth of the gospel hand in hand with increasing opposition and persecution? Or should we see a more visible um, kingship of Christ um, becoming an everyday reality? Can you all hear the question? And I, I don't know the answer to the question. <laughs> I think it's in the, the hands of a sovereign God how he will display the sovereign rule of his son. Um, certainly it would appear that uh, there's less recognition in this small part of the world than there was, say, a hundred years ago. But that has to be uh, taking uh, other things into account Christ is now being recognized in parts of Africa and in Asia in ways that he was never recognized 100 years ago. So his kingdom has advanced. And, and um, it may be that uh, he will display his lordship over these islands in judgment. Uh, and when, when things like global warning and, and the stern report tells us of the dreadful things to come, Maybe that's the king expressing his wrath on a part of the world that was privileged and blessed. As as drought came on Israel, maybe global warming is is the threat that is coming to the the cushioned Western nations that have had so much privilege and blessing from him that has not been acknowledged now 
for decades. But, but I think it begins, and it will begin, because there's a renewed interest in this subject that will begin when church, when individuals and families and churches begin to implement this, because the secular press is sometimes scoffing at the church for not being faithful to its own, its own mandate. Uh, and that's where it must begin with the church. Uh, we, 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 we ridicule the nation for what it's doing, but sometimes the churches are pathetic with, with regard to the recognition and implementation of the rule of Christ within its own domain. Um, I, I'm uh, a Reformed Baptist, and I'm sure our visitor uh, will say it's a logical impossibility, but I have uh, been a member of a Reformed Presbyterian church in the United States, right. and uh, surely there is really quite a major divergence between ideas about the relationship between church and state and the role of the state in the new world as compared with uh, Reformed Presbyterian position in the, in, in the United Kingdom, historically, I mean. And I have real problems with what you've said about the extent of the role of the state. Uh, I, I, mean, uh, I mean, are we really saying that the, the state ideally should, for example, uh, suppress spiritualism, should suppress idolatry, in other words, other, other religions, uh, should punish adultery, you know, not only forbid it, but punish it? I, I, you know, I, I think we're... You know, that, that seemed to me to be the, the logical, the, the inevitable consequence of what you're saying. I'm sure we all heard the question. Uh, Robert, can you... Yes, yes, you're, you're, you're good at logic, and, and that's exactly what I'm saying. But the fact that we're light years away from that, that's not the point to begin. And so uh, nations have to be, uh, understand their obligation and there has to be evangelism, and all that goes hand in hand. Uh, what I can't take away from the scriptures, the obedience of the nations is his. And so the nations have to be obedient. They can't legislate uh, for, for immorality, and that's what's been happening. And, and I'm not saying that, that there, there should be heavy punishments for wickedness, but there has to be a recognition that wickedness is wicked. I mean, why discriminate between the Sixth Commandment and the Seventh Commandment? Why, why do we say it's wrong to murder? Because that's what relativists are, are saying, those who believe in relativism, that it's all relative, and so there's no, no such thing as right and wrong any longer. Uh, and once we begin to chip away at the foundations, then we're left with nothing. So uh, there is a responsibility for the state to recognize what is moral, what is consistent with the moral law of God, and to, to promote righteousness, and to, uh, Romans chapter 13, uh, to be a terror to those who do evil. I'm not prepared to go down that route any further because it's a very complicated issue as to what the form of punishment should be, but, but a righteous nation uh, has to grapple with these things, as our nation did grapple with in the past. directed by the chairman. Um, can, 
obviously, you know, Christ as, as God, um, his sovereignty is eternal. But also you talked about it as being a process as well. How, how can we reconcile those two things? Well, uh, what I'm, I'm saying is that as God, uh, as, as the second person of the Godhead, he was always God because God is king. The Bible makes that clear. God is sovereign. But then it, it is clear from Philippians 2 and all the passages that a special sovereignty, it's a mediatorial sovereignty, and it's to do with his role as mediator. And, and I could have uh, applied that because of his mediatorial sovereignty Psalm 110, his people will become submissive, willing in the day of his power. So it's because of Christ's sovereignty that that I come and bow the knee to him as a a penitent sinner. That's that's the outworking of Psalm 110. It's it's because of his sovereignty that that, uh, I am being sanctified because he is subduing enemies in my heart. And it's Christ as mediatorial sovereign is subduing those enemies. He's also, uh, having conquered Satan on the cross, he's restraining him and holding him back. So, so there's this special position given to him in, uh, in according to redemption as mediator. And it's, it's to save his elect. Uh, and if we read first, uh, Ephesians 1, verse 23, he's head over everything to the church or for the church. And why is he head over the nations? Why is he? It's because of his church. It's all for his church. It's to bring his bride to glory. And I missed that point, but that's, that's the, the full purpose. It's the mediator completing, as it were, what he came to this earth to do. And as prophet, priest, and king, that's that he accomplishes all of that. And it's Hebrews 2, is it, where it talks about things not yet seen. Is that yeah. part of that? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's part of that whole concept. Okay. recognize me now, do you? <laughs> Mine's a very practical request. Please write an open letter to the Prime Minister and say what your three priorities would be for him to tackle. In the remaining two months of Mr. Blair's rule, <laughs> <laughs> send a letter to him. What? My question was apolitical. <laughs> well, yeah, John's comment is political. It's also apolitical, because that's what he said, yeah. and we believe what he says, don't we? <laughs> well, that's the implication of what I'm making. Every one of us should be writing to the Prime Minister to remind him, and I wrote to him last Wednesday, to remind him of his responsibility with regard to this bill that came uh, across my, my doorstep, uh, or the proposed bill. So, so to be consistent with what I'm saying, we all ought to be protesters or good Protestants and protest to, to those who are in power about what they're doing and remind them of the seriousness and that, uh, Tony Blair, you are a servant of Jesus Christ and it is your duty to implement his rule in the land and not to, to listen to the homosexual lobby as he appears to be doing. But uh, yes, I will, I will do that. Thank you. And will you too, Mr. <laughs> Any other point anyone wants to raise? Lady in front here. Uh, while the 
Christian would obviously recognize the lordship, the headship, and the kingship of Christ now. Do not think that the world will not recognize the Lord in these aspects until after he has come and put the world right at the second coming. Is it not too much, perhaps, to expect it before he comes? In human, ter- in human terms, it is too much to expect. But um, the Bible calls in Psalm, Psalm 100, all people that on earth to dwell sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. And uh, Psalm 117, it calls all nations to praise God. So uh, because God has created everyone, they are under an obligation uh, to worship him, to glorify him. Now, in their unconverted state, they can't. But still, I'm to remind them that they're under an obligation to worship him. And that adds to their judgment if they won't and if they don't. In the part of the world that I came from, uh, up until comparatively recently in my, my childhood and early youth, Sabbath observance was practically widespread across the country. Um, there was a fear of God, a recognition that God is holy. And so unbelievers kept the Sabbath. Uh, may, may, that may be a mystery to us. Uh, why, why do people, um, some Christians wouldn't dare blaspheme? Because there's a sense of the holy and every man has a conscience. I believe that deep down in every individual person, there is a concept and awareness of judgment. So we've got to recognize those things and in our evangelism, exploit them in the right sense of that word. So yes, we call on all nations, we call on all, whether they can or not. It's the same when I'm preaching, I call upon everyone in the congregation to repent and believe. But I know unless the Holy Spirit takes the word and applies it powerfully and effectively to the unbeliever. No one will repent. But still, it's my duty and obligation to call everyone to repent. So, <laughs> But we do not see, uh, in Hebrews, it talks about mm-hmm. we do not yet see. Yeah. There's obviously a tension there. Uh, between, uh, you know, we, we see it every day. We don't see Christ's rule. Um, what, how would you think for a Christian believer uh, there's that tension in us, isn't there? How should we uh, uh, live with that tension of uh, knowing that Christ rules yet not seeing his rule everywhere all around us? Well, um, I used to be troubled in the mid-60s about... I suppose I, I became politically aware somewhere around 1963 when I disco- uh, recognised that there was a certain tension in my home at the, at the, the crisis in, um, between Kennedy and Khrushchev. Um, what's the name of the island? Um, Cuba. Cuba, the Cuban crisis. And then I became aware that somebody could press a button and someone else could press a button and the whole thing would go up. And then I became aware Jesus Christ is on the throne and no one, no one will press the button unless he has authorized it, unless he has permitted it. And so we take great comfort from the fact he's on the throne, he's in control, he's working out all things for the good and benefit and well-being of his church. But to bring glory to him, it is our duty as Christians to submit ourselves to his authority and to bring 
everything around us into submission. We pray your kingdom come. And so when we pray, if we pray your kingdom come sincerely, we should be actively working to bring everything in submission to the king. And so that's the work of the Christian Institute. It's the work of my congregation. It's the work of uh, every Christian family to bring everything in submission to the king. It's, it's an idealistic uh, endeavor, but, but it's our remit. To evangelize the world is our remit. It's an idealistic uh, endeavor, but yet we work at it. And, and if God pleases to use this or that to advance the kingdom, to him be the glory. I want to say thank you very much to you for coming tonight once again and for giving us the benefit of your biblical wisdom uh, and uh, talking to us so clearly about the rule of Christ and for answering our questions. We're so grateful to you for doing that and we hope we can look forward to you coming back to see us on a number of occasions in the years ahead. So thank you very much indeed for coming tonight.